This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. Mike here as your host and today I'm joined with Tony Watley who's the founder of 365 Driven. He's the best-selling author of The Side Hustle Millionaire and he's also a podcaster as well. Tony, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Michael, thanks for the opportunity. I can't wait to get to know you a little bit better and also give some audience people some takeaways. So I want to start really with a little bit about your past, because if I'm right, you started in the automotive industry and you've got quite a achievement slash story to go along with that. So paint the picture for us and share a bit about that. Yeah, actually, with the very first business I ever started was in 1994, and I was selling billiard pool cues, and I was a dealer for those, and that was just a side business. And then I started to do more automotive things in 1998, and I launched an online community in 2001, which grew into the largest General Motors performance community of the internet with over 300,000 members. And then I started another one for trucks, and that one grew to over 280,000 registered members. When you say registered members, what what does that mean? Are these customers, clients, people in the community? Like what was the uh, what was the main thing with that? Yeah, they were actually just users that would visit the websites as part of the community, and they just got the the articles, the how tos, the videos, things that were content content creation. Because you got to realize that this was also pre social. We started in two thousand one, and we sold that company in two thousand seven. So, you know, Instagram was like 2009 and Facebook was 2008. So these were all things that we used as automotive communities, the forum type software. So we had their name, we had their email addresses. Sometimes we had their shipping addresses, but for the most part, it was just a data collection of people that were visiting on a daily basis. We could see the user logs. So we had over a hundred thousand unique visitors per day. So it was a very busy website, which Mm. attracted a lot of advertising revenue. Right. So that was the the main form of monetization for yourself at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The more eyeballs you can get, the more that you can create advertising revenue and the higher rates you can charge for advertising. So the the pool cue side was your side hustle. Now you're you're more known for the side hustle millionaire, which was your best selling book. And I'm guessing that was the main thing why you wanted to write the book or was that a bit more to your attempts to start side hustles and businesses beforehand well for me the yeah the side hustle millionaire we sold that that group of communities for millions of dollars but the thing is is that i didn't really think about writing the book until years later and the funny thing is is that most people can achieve some kind of a financial success but they still have self-doubt right you start thinking that was it lightning striking once and could I do it again? Or did I get lucky? And, and you start to realize that over time and wisdom and experience and helping others achieve their own levels of success, that you just did everything right. There was a lot of things that you were doing right. And you start looking at, you know, why was the valuation so high on the things that I created? And you start looking at what companies look at when they're buying or acquiring other companies. And we had recurring business model. We had a recurring revenue. We had high profit margins. We had, you know, a lot of activity. We had the database of users. We had all these different things to make valuation extremely high for what we did. So, you know, it was a side business. And one of the things I always tell people is that even if it was a side business, I always think about the side business as the one that takes less of your time, not the one that makes the less money. So most people think side business means side income. Well, my side, technically side businesses in the automotive space were making probably about double what my engineering salary was. So it was actually a side business based on the time alone, but we were making about $400,000 a year profit on something that I was spending less than an hour a day on. So how would you define a side hustle then? You mentioned it's not necessarily the the income, it's the time, which is a great way of looking at it, to be perfectly honest with you, Tony. But is there a threshold whereby it stops being a side business and becomes a, a full-time thing? I think it depends on the business model. That's one of the questions that I get asked commonly is like, why did not you just go full-time on the business? Well, the thing is, is that I already owned the market share. We were at the very top of our market share and everybody else was trying to take us off the top of the hill. So 
having me just go from one hour a day to eight hours a day would not have increased the revenue at, at all. It just wouldn't have happened because we had the top of the market share. Now, if I'd been in the middle of that market share and I was climbing and taking off and making a few more extras, you know, hours of, of productivity to try to climb that mountain would have expedited or got some accelerated results for that company, then maybe I would have done that. But you have to look at it at a perspective. There's no one right answer for any of that kind of stuff. And Honestly, for me, it was like, well, uh, if I can do this in one hour a day, I still have a lot of hours left per day. So why don't I just go double my income by keeping my career? And that's what I did. What I find interesting about that is that it's almost like a minimum effective dose in terms of time. It's like if you upped your hours, that wouldn't necessarily mean you're increasing your income, but you found the sweet spot in terms of the right amount of time so that you can get the most out of it. Is that something you can speak to? Yeah, absolutely. Actually in my book, I talk about that, trying to make the maximum amount of dollars in the minimal time. You know, I see a lot of business owners just putting in crazy amounts of hours and they're almost bragging about how many hours they work. And I'm thinking the opposite. I'm thinking, man, I'd rather make a lot more money and work a lot less hours. And it's not out of laziness. It's just out of efficiency. Cause what happens is when people start thinking about, man, I'm putting 16 hours a day in my business. I'm crushing it. I'm thinking like, no, you're not crushing it because I'd rather be able to go take a drive for a few hours in a day. I'd rather go hang out at the gym for a couple hours a day. I'd rather go have lunch with my friends, go visit my family, do whatever I want and still make the same money. And to me, that's a whole lot more valuable is the time freedom versus the money. Because once you get to a certain income level, you're pretty damn comfortable. You don't really have to go chase those by just adding more dollars of your time. So, you know, everybody's just chasing hours and bragging about that. But it's just a, I think it's a money maturity mindset. I think that uh, it's still a, it's attached to that thing that we grew up with, Michael. It's called, you know, time is money, money is time. And when you grow up hearing that your entire life, you believe it without even questioning it because you just hear it from your, your parents, your teachers, your, your former supervisors. And you just really start to think, okay, time is money. So if I need more money, I need to do more time. That's just not true. And entrepreneurship, especially digital, that's not true at all. I saw a video the other day. It was a logo designer. I think he designed the Nike logo, right? Now, if that was something that he did in two or three minutes or three or four months, there was this debate about someone would charge less because it was taking him less time to do when the actual value of the logo is massive. It's worth thousands. It's worth millions to Nike, right? Or Nike, depending on where you're from. So then he was like, well, I'm being penalized for being good because I get it done quicker because I'm better. But then using the time versus money sort of way of working out how much you should charge or how much you're worth or how you spend your time on this side hustle that, you, that you're trying to create, it becomes a catch-22 at that point. Like, the, why, why should I be better at what I'm doing? Because I actually get it done in less time, which then affects how much I can earn if I stick to that, if I stick to the you know, hourly rate, right? As a lot of people tend to, to go off. So it's an interesting point that you've made where at a certain point you've got to go beyond that you've got to go past the time is money belief you want to get past the hourly rate because the better you are you get things done quicker and you shouldn't be penalized for being better should you tony no that, that's that's a it's a mindset thing that a lot of us still struggle with even if we're being paid by performance or value right because certain things, certain categories, certain business models do have an hourly structure, right? And you look at your employees, they're based on an hourly structure, even if you're salary, because I know there's some people that get a salary and they're like, I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I got a salary now. Well, <laughs> I hate to tell you when we go to the HR and we look at the payroll software, it's still based on an hourly rate. You're based on an hourly rate. And the thing is, is that when you start to be paid based on your performance or your value, the things that you create, there's still the resistance for people to want to just look at the hourly rate of that and go, wow, that's, that's over a thousand dollars an hour. Like, like that's crazy. But at the end of the day, it's like, if you're working for this thing, like, like, for example, if I'm, I'm coaching business owners and I'm saving them millions of dollars per year or finding millions of dollars a year for them, what is that worth to them on a financial level? Well, then they're going to be like, well, shit, I'd pay a lot for that. Now they go, well, 
it's only 50 hours a year and you want to charge what? You know, so they're, they're kind of thinking hours and dollars again, of course. and they're not looking at the results. So it's like this scarcity mindset that's just driven into us as childhood, our teen years, our 20s, our 30s, working for that hourly rate. We just think that everything's based on an hourly rate. But at the end of the day, successful people realize that we're going to pay for a result. You know, and like you said, if I can get that result faster, I might be willing to pay a little bit more for that. It's a bit of a flip, isn't it? Because there are some people that would think it would be cheaper because it would be a shorter time frame. But then if the result is better within that shorter time frame, it's worth more. So I think there is that contrast between quick possibly doesn't necessarily mean better to some people. But if it is, then you should actually charge more for it because the quality could actually improve because they're better at what they do right right yeah exactly i mean if i were to present something to a client and i said this is a five-year coaching program and it's going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> like people be like first of all like that that is high but it's five years like that's so long but if i were to give you the exact same results in five months for the same price i bet people would be like well the price is the same i'd rather have it in five months than five years yeah, so sometimes people actually value efficiency more at a certain point. They value the speed more yes. than than the result, I guess. I suppose it's that trade-off, isn't it? In the back of their mind, they're thinking, could I get a better result in that longer time frame or not? If not, I'd probably go for speed over like potential better result. If it doesn't actually happen, then you've actually wasted time. From yeah, you know, point. I actually gained awareness of this, luckily, back when I was in college, when I was just enrolling in engineering school. So I was a freshman at the university, and I didn't have a lot of confidence in my mathematical ability. Here I'm going to engineering school I've been without a lot of confidence in my mathematics. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do a, a refresher course in calculus. I'm just going to take pre-calculus college level and just make sure I have that really got grasp on that before I go into calculus. Cause everybody was scaring me and saying calculus was the weed out course and you're going to fail and you're going to get kicked out of school. And, and so I was kind of playing safe. And yeah. so I, I remember talking to the Dean of the university and I'm handing in my courses and he says, Hey, do you want me to save you $25,000? And I'm like, wow, you know, yeah, I'm paying for college. Like I'd love to save $25,000. Like you tell me more, sir. And he goes, why are you signing up for pre-calculus? And I'm thinking it wasn't a $25,000 course. So why are you, are you, you know, what are you suggesting? He's like, well, think about this. If you take that course, it's going to put you six months behind on your graduation because now you're going to have to take that and then that and everything stacks upon that. So you basically, you're going to graduate six months later than you would have. And that's going to cost you half a year's salary, which at your level would have been about 50000 starting. So you're, I'm saving you $25,000 by just not taking this course. And when he started to think about that, I was like, oh, my God, results and time, long game. Like, I didn't take that course and I did really well in calculus. So that's just a lesson that most people think about this. And if you don't have a lot of time, you better have money to get the results. If you don't have a lot of money, you better have a lot of time to get those results. It's interesting when you bring up the potential of the other direction because calculus is calculus and graduation is graduation. Yeah, but what else could you do with that time? What else could you be doing? Because you mentioned that the salary was 50K as a start, but you wouldn't have known that if you weren't open to the possibility of something different other than your, your course, yeah? Yeah, we call that opportunity cost. What's, what's that time or that dollar value that you're trying to skimp on? What's the real opportunity? That, what's the result that you would get the faster clients or the faster your company's growing? Or what's the real opportunity cost? A lot of times we don't look at opportunity costs. We look at the cost of or the investment of something, but we don't realize what we're losing. Very, very interesting point, which then speaks to time freedom as well. What else could you do with your time 
if you maybe shaved off like three hours a day and the income didn't move, what else could you do with that time? So one of the things I want to ask as well is if somebody wanted to start a side hustle, what should they aim for first? Because in the back of their mind, they're thinking time, freedom, great, income, great, I can balance everything. But is there any element of maybe I have to shift the balance a little bit add more time initially so income being the focus or do I go no time and efficiency wants to be first but do you sacrifice that for the the income growth that you want yeah I think with side businesses you you're obviously already putting away eight to ten hours a day on your normal career and then you got time for sleeping and then you got time for your family and any your activities your fitness so you have to be really realistic about how much time is left remaining that you can work with on a daily basis and on weekends. And once you establish that time, you get to realize what is the most that I can earn in that short amount of time? Like, cause that's, that's a, that's a fixed limitation that I, I have. And so if you're hand building widgets at the kitchen table, like I actually did this one of my businesses, I was building electronic circuits and I'd get home and I'd bust out my soldering iron and my little resistors and I'd hand build these little circuits and, it would take me an hour to build each unit. And then I would profit about 30, 30, $40 per unit, but I can only build two or three of those per evening. So my company would never grow beyond making a couple hundred dollars an evening at the most, you know, just limited on myself. So that doesn't work too well at scalability. So if you want to do that as a hobby and just make a, a couple extra hundred bucks a, a night sitting at your kitchen table, you're going to use all of those hours and you're, you're always going to be limited on how much you can earn. So think about the resources or the knowledge or the things that you already have available to yourself that maybe someone else doesn't have. Maybe you have access to some kind of a, a fancy software or an app that your company's paying for that you can actually use, or maybe you have special tools or knowledge or a skill set that you could apply to teach other people how to do those kind of things or mass produce things and understand the industry that you're getting into. So I always try to think about how can I scale this company? How can I build it to where it could be potentially something that does become full-time, but you know, you always think about this other stuff is like, you hear these things like do what you love and only do, follow your passions. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that sometimes your passions are big and that's good. You want big dreams, you want big goals, but you have to also be realistic that you're not ready for that at this moment. Like if you were to ask me, Hey, Tony, what's your passion or what's your dream business? I was like, man, I would love to own a Ferrari dealership with a road course racing track built around it. So all my friends could come over and we could race cars all day and I could look at all these awesome Ferraris. But, you know, realistically, I don't have hundreds of millions of dollars just sitting around that I can go create that. So a quitter would be like, well, I guess I'm never going to have my dream. An entrepreneur will say, well, what does it take to get to that dream? And so for most people, that means you have to go start a few different companies. We call I call these staircase businesses, like go start that small business, grow it to a couple six figure income then to go sell that business and build your one that's going to get you the seven and eight figures and just keep building these small businesses till you get to the, be the one that you had a dream. Don't like think about your dream and go, well, I can't do it. So I'm just going to give up. Entrepreneurs always problem solve. We figure out what we need to do and, and we're willing to do what it takes to go achieve those dreams. So don't think about following your passion and your purposes right now. If you can do that, great. But if not, go start something that will lead you to that eventually. That was exactly what I was thinking while you were describing it was staircase businesses, the idea that you can build on each other step by step until you're eventually able to hit the milestone that you want to hit. Now, this implies, of course, that the business grows, you profit from selling it or flipping it, for want of a better term, and then you use that to put into the next step staircase business that you would want to then start is there anything that you can share with us about selling side hustles because starting one growing one is one thing you've mentioned selling the businesses semi-frequently through our, our chat and i think it's worth us talking about that because a lot of people start them less people grow them scale them but then there are so few out there that 
sell them profitably and then reinvest. So take us to to the sort of sales side and flipping side and then the reinvestment side as well. Yeah, I love this kind of topic. It gets me excited because here's the reality, depending on which statistics or reports that you look at countrywide or, or uh, globally, only about 10% of businesses ever sell. And you're thinking, wow, does that mean 90% of businesses are not, a, not available? They're not listed for sale? No. Most businesses either go bankrupt or they sell eventually, but only 10% of them actually get bought. And the reality is that only 10% of those companies are actually worth something to a potential buyer. And we read books, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think of the, there's a couple of good books. I can't even think of the names right now, but Built to Sell by John Warlow is a good one that talks about how to, to think about building a company with the intent to sell. Even if you never plan on selling a business, you still should have some kind of an exit strategy or plan in mind because you never know. Most businesses get sold as a reaction to something where maybe a, a partner leaves or passes away, or maybe there's a divorce, or maybe your health fades and you can no longer operate the business, or maybe you just want to retire and, and get out of it and cash in. Well, if you wait till one of those things happen to try to sell your business, you're going to be punched in the face with reality. And you may have a highly profitable business, but it may also just be a high paying job. And you know what? Most people that are buying a company are not wanting to buy a job. They just want to build a cash flow machine that they one can start paying them back on the money that they've used to buy that company in the first place. So you really start to have to think about how do I build a company that's going to be interested to a particular, you know, a buyer, a potential buyer. And when you start to think of it that way, it's a whole lot different scenario. And you got to also make sure that your books and your accounting are on par because a lot of times small business owners are really guilty at trying to underreport how much income they make to try to avoid paying taxes. Yeah. So they spend, they spend money and they spend money and they spend money. And then at the end of the day, they, they file their taxes and say, oh, we didn't make much profit this year. But then you're looking in their personal bank account, they've made hundreds of thousands of dollars profit. They just paid themselves too much. And then what happens is when they go on to sell that business, the due diligence, the legal, the accounting will go back three years on your banks. And they go, well, your, your company's not making any profit, so it's not worth anything. I don't know what you're talking about. I made all this money. I'm, I have a good living. I'm, I'm doing really well. It's like, yeah, but we're buying your company, not your crap ass books and your bad accounting. So you have to make sure that you're always showing profit because that's what they're buying is the potential to make money. Uh, recurring revenue, things like that are actually really good data. If you have a, a large database of customers that saves them customer acquisition costs to build that same level of, of customer base, that, that has a lot of value. There's a lot of things that make a lot of value. Branding has to be really strong. So when you create any company, any company, you should start thinking about what would entice a potential buyer a few years from now to buy this. And if it's solely based on you as the business owner, like you've got, maybe you're an artist you're, you're a, or, or a photographer or something that's, that's got a really unique skill set, it's a good income, it's a good job, but it's not going to be valuable to a potential buyer. You got to work really hard to fire yourself and not be a part of that business because you, one, you have to be able to pay a manager or a CEO, someone that does your role to operate that business. So if you do sell it, it's already included in the budget and you can step away from it and actually just be an investor and owner, a board of directors type member. That way the potential buyer can go on day one and not have to hire somebody to replace you because that takes a dip in the profit. So there's a lot of things to think about when you're building a company. Most people, unfortunately, just build themselves jobs and their jobs aren't worth anything later on. It's a very interesting point when a lot of people build something around themselves initially, whether it's a skill, expertise, any of that sort of area or industry that they're in, it, it kind of pigeonholes them when they try to sell it because they become like irreplaceable in the business. Not not from like, you know, if you hire people, if you change the brand and all that, then that's different. It stops being about you. As you said, you've got to work pretty hard to to fire yourself, everything from training people or education or any of that sort of thing would have to be built into the business, I'm guessing, Tony, before you actually sell it. Absolutely. You got to be independent. You almost have to be standing outside of your business to make it worth something to a potential buyer. And that was what I did with the side business. I had 75 people on my staff. 
but I only had to be there an hour a day just to kind of monitor things and use things from a user perspective. I didn't have any operations assigned to me. And that was largely as a result of my career. I was working in offshore and international oil and gas. So at any given time, I could be anywhere in the world in a different time zone, maybe even not have internet connectivity. I was working in the UK. I was working in Spain and Italy and France and Africa. And sometimes you're off grid for a week. So I had to purposely build companies that didn't require my presence, which also helped make my company extremely valuable. So what should people think about when they're wanting to transition outside of their business? Let's say they're a freelancer. Let's say they could be, you know, an expert in something. Maybe they provide a service themselves. What would be the initial starting point for people? It could still be a side hustle, couldn't it? Because we're talking about not just the money, but the time element. So if we assume that it's a side hustle, they've got the time nailed down, but they want to step out. What would be the initial go-to for that? Yeah, I think that you have to be realistic with what you pay yourself as a business owner. And the question is, people always ask, you know, how much should I pay myself? Well, the easy answer to that is, what would you pay someone if you were hiring somebody to do your job? And whatever the number pops in your mind, like this is what I would pay somebody to do my job. So you have to build the, the business to be profitable enough to pay somebody that amount. And if you could do that and still make your income as an owner, have your owner distributions in your paycheck, whatever that might be. Now you go hire somebody to replace you. And then that it shows that, okay, I have still have a viable business model that's paying somebody to do these operational duties. And I don't have to be a part of running this business anymore. And now your company becomes more interesting to a buyer. If you can still sustain profit with somebody doing your CEO, your executive type role, then you've got a valuable company to somebody else. What that speaks to, and this is me just thinking out loud now, but it's like if you pay yourself and have profit at the end, if you pay yourself as a staff member, all you're doing is replacing yourself and then the money that you would normally pay you just goes to them. Correct. But I think that most people tend to pay themselves too much for what they do. So what would you suggest then? Because if they're, if they're in that point where let's just say a lot of what's left over after expenses just goes in the money jar, just goes over to them, that sort of scenario, right? Like all the profits mine, so to speak. Exactly. What would you suggest in terms of a bit of a step in, you know, I'm in this position now and I'm better than all the profit goes to myself? Well, I think a lot of times we bury ourselves in administrative duties and things that we could solve by a 10 to $15 an hour position. And if that's where you're wasting the, the majority of your time, you should hire administrative staff to go do those kind of things for you. So you could focus on the higher ticket, higher hourly type rate work that you, if that, if that requires you to go create social media content or, or stand on more stages or do things to really promote or market the business. then maybe that's what you should be doing. Maybe you should be on the lead gen. Maybe you should be a, a salesperson if that's who you are. Uh, I think a lot of times we look at the, all these problems, we've got all these tasks that we have, and we complain about how busy we are, but then you look at it and 80% of your time is doing things that could be solved with someone paying them $15 an hour. So it kind of goes back to those are $15 an hour problems that are flooding your mind and taking your attention that you should be working on things that a CEO would be paid and you don't pay a CEO $15 uh, an hour. No, 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 sure. So that, that comes down to freeing yourself for the time by hiring staff in that way doesn't it so you sort of shave off a couple of hours on the the admin by hiring somebody to to do that one of the things that i've always i've always thought really but i've never really tried to put the words as effectively as i am going to going to try to do right now and i always say there are people out there that enjoy doing the things that you hate there are people that would enjoy being a cleaner because they've maybe they've got OCD, right? Or maybe it's their part. They love the the pride of making things clean and standing back and going, I did that. 
you know, that sort of intrinsic motivation around doing the cleaning. But to us, it's like, nah, we don't really want to do that. So we've got this internal sense of what we do to feel good and what makes us feel good and what we really want to do. But we kind of project (laughs) our own value system around jobs and things onto other people and we would say oh how can anyone enjoy being a cleaner or how can anyone enjoy doing admin or how can anyone enjoy doing fill in the blank right whatever it is because it's just simply not what we would enjoy doing so that that's my sort of take on it is there are people that will be listening that will be like oh well I don't enjoy it so I don't feel good about making somebody else do something I don't enjoy but they might love it they might love seeing everything all light up and all they'll probably color code everything they probably get really creative when I'd be bored staring at a screen for three hours a day so there's definitely people out there that would love to do the jobs that you hate always yeah, delegate what you hate. There's always somebody that's better, more efficient at it. And just know where your strengths are and, and go focus on that. I think a lot of times people spend too much time and resources trying to focus on their weaknesses and improve their weaknesses. But go go invest that money in your strengths and make those even better. Hire out your weaknesses. I like the I like the analogy and the way that you, you sort of phrase it because so many people can focus on that while not improving their strengths and I do I do often speak to there are things that you might actually want to get better at as well isn't there Tony like all the things that I'm doing now to this day would be my weaknesses three or five years ago (laughs) absolutely so so sometimes you've got to pick your battles to a certain degree and 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 figure the rest out for yourself do you have any way that you can help people make those decisions because i can't imagine you were always doing the things that you're doing now and you had to learn it so if that was sort of taking your own advice of hiring out your weaknesses you might not be exactly where you are today so could you help some of the listeners out with that decision making Yeah, you have to be willing to do the work to evolve to become the right person to carry your message or your brand, right? And that's a good question for me because just over three years ago, I would have been terrified to stand on stages or be on TV or on radio. I didn't have a podcast. I didn't like being in front of cameras. I was very successful in the background and I had my own insecurities. So I just avoided those opportunities to do that. And I just, I had stage fright. I remember raising my hand in a conference room with a thousand people and they calling on me and, and I felt all the physiological signs of fear and the sweating and the cold shakes and the cotton mouth and all that. So I, I was not the right person at that time to do what I'm doing today. But unlike most people, I'm kind of a daredevil and I get excited when I find a new fear and then I go after it with all my might because most people just avoid those kind of situations and they just... They avoid uncomfortable situations. But for me, even the the book, yeah, became a number one bestseller. But when I was writing that book, I still knew that I was able to hide behind the title, that I didn't have to put myself out there. And honestly, it was my book editor that was reviewing each chapter by chapter. And he was like, this book's going to be really good. People may want to interview you. You may be on TV or on the radio. And I was like, oh, crap. Like the whole thing I was trying to avoid just by writing a book is here. It's, it's confronting me again. I could not avoid it. So I said at that point, okay, how do I get over this? I need to go become the right person to carry this message. And so I joined Toastmasters and I hired a speaking coach and I showed up every week and I practiced and I did social media videos every single day for over a year to get better. And, and they, honestly, they sucked at the beginning. They awfully sucked, but I knew that, but it was the best I could do. And I knew that the only way I can improve was by doing repetitions and doing those and the problem I find with most people is they put their ego ahead of their purpose and they're not willing to suck. Yeah. They may be exceptional at some things, but the things that matter to them, the things that's going to get them to their purpose, they have to be willing to go at the very bottom, be a newbie and suck at something and climb up just like everybody else has at that level. But they're unwilling to do that because they're so afraid of what people are going to think about them or say things about them. Or, you know, maybe, maybe you're a exceptional at, at writing copy, but you're terrible on video. Right. And, and maybe go, well, I need to go be on stages. I need to get some interviews. I need to be on podcasts. I need to get on TV. Like this is really going to help my message and my purpose and my vision and my business and my legacy and my impact. But you're so worried about doing that. 
because you're such a brilliant copywriter and everybody knows about you being a copywriter, but then, oh, I'm just not going to do videos because you're so worried about what other people think. Yeah. And, and if you realize that, if you just took the courageous step to put yourself out there and people know that it's not side, something inside your norm, it's something that's not comfortable for you, but you're willing to go do that. What you're going to realize is that you're going to start to inspire other people that see your transformation happen right before their eyes. As you start to do more and more reps and you start to improve, they're going to be like, man, you know what? I saw Tony doing these videos three months ago, man, he sucked. But look at him now. Like, wow, it's not even the same person. And you're going to start to inspire people. And that's how I grew a large part of my audience is just showing them that I'm going to keep showing up every single day. I'm going to keep doing the work. And you're going to see me improve. And I'll tell you guys, like listeners, within six months of me starting that journey, I was winning public speaking competitions. So I actually have the accolades because I put in the work and I didn't make any excuses, but the results were far faster than I ever expected for myself, far better than I ever expected for myself. So it can happen, but you got to do the work. I've got my own sort of stories around that as well because I'm a pretty big introvert. I've done all the tests and I'm quite high on the the introvert spectrum, if you will. But when when it boils down to it, I, I liked the challenge initially. I liked the challenge. I liked pushing myself. I liked testing myself. And a couple of things led to me wanting to do it out of... It was the best that I could do with my time. And you mentioned purpose. I felt like I was called to do it. So that's why I did it. That was my main motivation. It was, would you be happy with the way your life's going right now? And unfortunately, Tony, the answer was, the answer was no. So I then embarked on this sort of journey and hated the first time on stage. I, I, I almost broke down when I was on stage. It was only about, 100 people in the audience but everyone was looking at me and the lights were on and I could see all of their faces and um, that that was pretty much it I, I don't remember what I said I don't remember what I felt I don't remember any of it because my brain had just like cut off you know when you wake up if you had a bit too much to drink and you wake up and just forget the entire night that was kind of what it was like but I had nothing to drink Tony I had absolutely nothing to drink so I can definitely resonate with the story and the way that it, it sort of comes across is you've got to be prepared to do things that you really want to do. And then you've also got to decide where around the edges of that can I shave time off by delegating it to other people. Yeah, I would even challenge that. I, I didn't want to do what I'm doing. I just knew that it was necessary for me to achieve my purpose. And I can never achieve my purpose of impacting millions of people by teaching them confidence and business principles if I were to remain hiding and irrelevant and obscure. So I had to become the right person to carry my message, my story, my book, the things I create nowadays. But I had to evolve to become that. And it was a hard journey. It wasn't easy but I'm still evolving. I'm still improving. I do this every day. So you have a duty to go pursue your legacy and nobody's going to stop you, but you, but you got to take the actions and you have to be willing to suck at it just like everybody does when they start, but give yourself some grace and understand that you will improve over time, but you will never improve over time just by reading things and watching things and listening to things. You got to do the action. How can you help someone actually discover what that is, what their purpose is, what their real calling is? Because everyone talks about it. Everyone brings it up. Everyone mentions it. The select few actually try to describe how it feels. But how can you help people actually find it for themselves? I don't think you can help anybody find their purpose for themselves. And anybody that promises they can do that for you, they're probably full of shit. Let's be real. Because everybody's got a different purpose. Most people, unfortunately, their purpose is much smaller than it needs to be because they don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in what's potential for themselves. And here's a good example. Most people that are aspiring to be average, you ask them what their purpose is. They always give you about the same answer. They say something about, oh, it's my kids. It's my family. 
Well, that's an honorable programmed response to average people. Because if you're to say that to me, I was like, oh, your, your children and your family is your purpose. That's your purpose on this earth. I always think that that's too small. I think that's your duty. Your kids, your family, that's your duty. That's not your purpose. Your purpose could impact millions of, not billions of people, but you don't believe it's possible for yourself. So you say it's your family. And when you tell other people who are aspiring to be average, they just nod their head and go, yeah, me too. And that's usually a sign that they just want to end that conversation because it becomes very uncomfortable when they go beyond that family response because you're not supposed to challenge that because that's like, it's so virtuous. That's my family, right? No, your purpose is much bigger. So start hanging around with people that challenge your potential versus accept your mediocrity. It's interesting you bring that up because, you know, depending on where you're from, uh, childbearing age is 16 and, and up, right? And it's, it leads to a very straightforward, easy way of fulfilling your purpose if the only limit is how old you are. <laughs> you just yeah. go, and, go and have kids and, and that's it, right? Fulfill my purpose now. I live for my kids and that's it. Yeah. Uh, what, are you supposed to die and just wait for grandkids? I mean, that's that's unfortunately that most people believe that their potential is because they've been programmed that way. They heard that from their parents, their friends. And there's times that people tell you, I remember when I grew up without money and people thought, man, if you can make a six figure income, you're going to be successful. And I remember hitting that point and thinking like, I don't feel successful. No. You know, like this is that, that's what everybody aspires to. I, I did that in my twenties. It's like, this is it. This is it. This is I'm supposed to cruise control for the next 45 years, retire and then die. It's like, this is it. No people quit surrounding yourself with people who validate your obscurity your mediocrity and start finding people who talk less about remember when, but challenges you to think about imagine when. I like that. I like that re reframing of imagining and the potential that's there. And I find that I don't, I don't want to say misery loves company, but I think average loves company. The, the, the status quo loves company. Because I think while misery may love company, I find that if misery is the status quo, that's the reason why. It's not, we don't like being miserable. It's because miserable is normal. You know, everyone's complaining about something. We're all the same, right? I, d I don't think misery loves company because we don't enjoy it. I think normal and average and the status quo loves company because that's how it was created. Isn't it? That's how it's, it doesn't become the status quo if there isn't a majority vote for something like that. Yeah, I'll give you a good topic here. I just finished one of my own events in Montana last week. I was hosting event 365 Driven Advance and one of our speakers was Jeff Lerner and he's on the Asperger spectrum. And he also has some, I guess, genetic disorder with his face where it kind of has a Down syndrome tack, you know, has a little bit of that on his face. And he's highly intellectual, but he gave a really transforming, compelling, heartwarming speech about how he was a, as a, a professional pianist before he became a digital entrepreneur. And so he was paid to, to play piano for the most wealthy people in the Houston area, like a lot of the sports teams owners and things like that. And he was hanging around all these billionaires and he started to really notice that everybody that was highly successful was what he would call as weird. They had some kind of weird personality or weird characteristic. There was just, there was just, they were far beyond average, but they were just something weird about them. And he's looking at us in the office and I was like, all of you, I've got to know you a couple of days. Like you're all weird too. And we're like, yeah, we are. And so what he understood is that highly successful people are not average. They are weird. There's something OCD or some kind of quirkiness about them. They're socially awkward. There's every single one of them he could think of had some weirdness about them. So what he realizes is that if you just want to be average, you're only going to have an average life. If you try to fit in and just be normal, you know, air quotes, normal, whatever that is, you're just going to get normal results. So when you start thinking about people who are standing out, people who have truly impacted and changed this world, they could all be labeled as weird. And so when you start to think about that, embrace what makes you unique, embrace your weirdness and realize that being weird, being different is what's going to make your life completely different from the average. 
I like how it's the uniqueness that actually causes the unique life. And it's something that I had to embrace as well to a certain degree because I, I was so focused on not so much comparison, but trying to be like other successful people. And it was built around, you know, trying to model them, trying to take what works and discard the rest. And there was some common patterns that I was seeing. So I just tried to emulate it. I just tried to follow in their footsteps. And I realized that I couldn't a long time ago. I realized that I couldn't actually model somebody else while being different at the same time. So it's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that so many people talk about. So many people try to teach others how to do, you know, the whole sort of emulate people who are successful and you'll be successful without realizing that, hang on, we're actually different. So you can, emulate, you can emulate their actions and tactics and things like that, but you should never emulate their characteristics or their, their personality and things like that. What I found interesting as well is if you think about the the idea that people buy from people as well don't they they have to like they know like you and trust you and all those things all the things that we tend to understand around trust building and all that sort of stuff that in itself will lead to different results even if you do the same tactic just because you know different people will like you different people will trust you maybe there's a scalability factor in that not everybody is going to like you, right? So you can't sell to the planet. So by by that virtue and that sort of reasoning, you're always going to have some kind of, I don't want to say limit, but some kind of difference and serving different people just because of your difference, just because of your uniqueness, just because of your personality. It's bound to happen. It's bound to. Everyone's different. Everyone's got a different life, even if you do the same the same sort of things and very often people tend to forget that don't they They tend to forget that you know you are unique it's the only way really you'll actually stand out and find your your place if you will when it comes to business or or life as well I want to take a bit of a sidetrack if that's okay because you mentioned that one of your passions and dreams is to have a Ferrari dealership with a track around it now I do know that cars are one of your your things if you will one of your main things so talk to us a bit about what your favorite car is my favorite car is always going to be a 1969 Camaro 1969 Camaro yeah and the reason is is because that was my very first car that I bought by mowing yards and working at McDonald's and just flipping things to be able to buy a $1,200 rusted piece of crap car that was smoking and had holes in the body. And I restored that with my dad when I was 15 and was able to drive that at 16. And I had to sell that car. I love that car, but I had to sell that to pay for college. I had to get something that was a little bit more fuel economic. And so I put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into that car. And I've owned several of them since I still own a few now. Uh, they've been on covers of magazines. So now I've, I build them at a really high level, like hundreds of thousands of dollars building these cars. But I don't care how many cars I have. That's always going to be my favorite car because it reminds me of my my past, my my first upbringing, the very first car I loved. Yeah, I like that. What is it about Ferrari then that makes you go to Ferrari instead of a Camaro dealership instead? I think for me, the Ferrari is just more of an artistic type thing. You know, when you grow up broke, it's kind of a thing that you hang on your wall. Mm, I think yeah. they, they're very good with their designs. I think their designs last, they're timeless, almost everything they produce. So yeah, I would love to own a dealership, but I would never want to work at a dealership. Yeah. Would you, would you own a Ferrari? Have you ever owned one? I have not, but I would, but I prefer American cars. I own a couple of Dodge Vipers and some classic muscle cars. So I prefer American cars more than anything. Is it about speed for you or do you like how the the car works? I know a lot of people talk about just you can hear the sound of changing gears and how the steering wheel feels and the pedals under your feet and all that. What's your what's your sort of real passion around driving? I don't know. I can't explain that. I, I I've always been fascinated by mechanical things, whether that was airplanes, cars, military tanks. Even as a child, my mom would buy me coloring books and I would sit at the kitchen table while she was making dinner 
And instead of coloring the books, I would just draw cars and, and trucks in the, in the blank pages of the book. And so I've always been fascinated with those, even as a child. I just think that some people are born with that mechanical mind and we're just curious about mechanical things and, and fast things. And yeah, for me, acceleration, I like the adrenaline rush, like speed, top speed at, at a stable speed. I've been over 200 miles per hour several times. It's not all that exciting, but getting to 200 is way more exciting than when you finally get there. Cause then you're like, oh, this is it. Feels like I'm just doing a little bit faster on the freeway. So you've got to feel that G force, the acceleration's far more entertaining. I've had cars where I launched them at the drag strip and I'm shifting. I love manual transmissions, by the way. So some of these cars, the front wheels would be in the air. And while the front wheels are still in the air, I'm shifting into second gear. So that's a lot of fun. The acceleration, that initial hit, you know, so I love the, the acceleration things of cars. But for me, it's, it's a, a lot about aesthetics and visual. I'm very creative. I like to see the design. I love creative designs. I think a lot of modern cars are very boring. I call them uh, commuting appliances because they're just as exciting as looking at a refrigerator. They serve a purpose for most people to go from A to B. It's a commuting appliance. I think that a lot of cars have lost their character and they don't have like this 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 aura or, or, a, or a soul about them. I think the classic cars have more soul, more personality. They had a lot more design talent back then. And also you look at some of these designs in the 1950s and 60s, and understanding that the technology they had to build those kind of bodies was really low. And they pulled off some amazing designs that even today they would struggle with, with all the modern equipment we have. As exciting as looking at a fridge. <laughs> I imagine it's even worse with the electric cars as well. You look at them and think they're just, they're just fridges on wheels, aren't they, Tony? It's what they are. Some of them look good, but to me, if you don't look back at the car you're driving, when you're walking away from it, you probably bought the wrong car. Really funny. That's tickled me. Okay, so we've talked about cars. I just had to get that in there because uh, I had a bit of variety for those that are listening because you are quite a big car fan. So I had to get that in there, Tony. <laughs> um, so shifting gears a little bit. <laughs> That's good car, good car analogy. Made me laugh for a while. Like, oh, I said shifting gears on a podcast episode. Uh, okay. It's almost like Toki. I was watching uh, Toki just the other day, so I had to bring it up on the podcast. What would you say were some of the biggest mistakes that you see people make when it comes to starting side hustles, trying to grow businesses, that you can give us some tips on regarding avoiding those things? Yeah, the number one mistake I see for most people that especially leaving a corporate job or some kind of a skilled trade to start a business is they rely too much on their knowledge or their skill set in that specific type of talent or that, that, that the business that they worked in. They don't invest enough time in becoming a business owner and understand all the metrics of business. So whatever you are, like, like for example, staying with the car analogies, maybe you're a good mechanic. Maybe you're really talented at repairing cars. And you look at your boss and he's sitting in that air conditioned office and you go, yeah, that'd be nice to be the owner. I could do this. And so within a year, you save up some money and you go start your own mechanic shop. And then a year after that, you realize like you're going out of business because you don't know anything about business. So if you have special knowledge, special skills, I want you to really think that that's only about 50% of the true value of being a business owner. So you need to go invest in becoming a business person, understand marketing, accounting, all the principles, leadership, communication, all these things need to be equally as skilled in to be a very successful business owner. So if you're not willing to invest in that kind of stuff, you're probably not going to have very good success at becoming a business owner. So go hire a business coach, go read the business book, start to understand the terminology, become confident in speaking in business terms and then start to hire the people to do the old skill sets and knowledge bases that you once had and just use your skills and your knowledge to quality audit them and make sure they're doing things properly. It's interesting how so many people actually do that. And I can speak to it because one of the first businesses that I ever had was tennis coaching. I was a tennis coach, like freelance coach. So I'd work at a tennis club, I would deliver sessions, coaching, and then that would be sort of how how I made my money back in the day. And I had no idea the learning curve that it took to go from, I'm qualified to do this thing, but how do I get clients? How do I actually do the thing more often? 
because you can you get taught how to do it you go on all the courses you get all the accreditations you do everything that you need to be able to do the actual skill of whatever it is that you're doing but so few even mention marketing even mention selling i had no idea how to sell no idea how to market i was a coach and that was it i didn't know how to market stand out create products and services my brain went to i'll charge x amount per hour and i'll try and get clients without knowing how to do it now bearing in mind i was even quieter than i am now and uh, i oh i had to be social oh my god i've got to actually speak to people this is this is crazy how am i supposed to do that i had no idea what i was doing i didn't even know how to break the ice with some of the people you usually pass people in in the in the tennis club but i would just keep going i would just keep walking i wouldn't even know i was looking with try and make eye contact and that was awkward enough i had no idea how to actually grow a business but i had the skill so i can definitely speak to that side of things and i think business isn't taught enough is it it's not taught how to actually grow a business we're spending a lot of time learning the skill of the thing but not the business side of turning it into a business I agree. That's a great example, by the way. I love that she went through that to understand that. Most people just give up and they go find another job because things aren't working out for them. But if they would have just invested some time in understanding marketing and especially the psychology around marketing, because un- un- most people just think that you put up a flashy website and a flashy logo and then all this business is going to start pouring into your lap. <laughs> but it's not true. A lot of times people maybe have a really good idea for a book and they write that book they put it on Amazon and nobody buys it. And they're like, why is nobody buying it? This is so valuable. Yeah. You, here's the thing is that one, people do judge books by their cover, no matter how warm and fuzzy we like to say otherwise. <laughs> and two, if they don't know about it, they're not going to find it. They're not going to buy it. So you could actually build the best product. You could have the very best service. You could write the best book, have the best podcast, all of that stuff. But if nobody knows where to find it or knows about it, it doesn't matter. So Marketing, communication, sales, like you said, selling, the the skill of selling, go invest a lot of time and money in learning those abilities. And here's the best thing about that. Once you know how to sell, once you know how to do marketing and the psychology of marketing and copywriting and all these things, you can apply that to every single business you ever create because you only got to learn it once. So go invest in that. It's definitely... If there was a skill to learn that you would carry with you wherever you go, I would probably say negotiating. For me, it's marketing. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely up there. Those are the two would be the skills that you can do no matter where you go. Yeah, negotiation's easy for me. I just set a price that I'm selling something at and I say no to everything else. I just say no. You're like, you don't have to negotiate. I get I get that there's a cultural thing in different areas that they expect to negotiate, but I just set the, the price is the price. And if they don't want to pay the price, I just tell them no. I think a lot of people need to, to hear that because very often you end up losing a battle inside your head regarding prices before you even come up with a price. And then people will try to negotiate and you've already told yourself no to begin with so you'll start more than willing to reduce the price to to make the sale because deep down you have these preconditioned beliefs that we touched on before that you're happy to do that when you shouldn't really be okay to do that should you no i think that if you just give a fair price like nothing annoys me more than when people pad their price knowing that people will negotiate I was like, why would you want to go through that whole thing? Just just put the price at what you would take to have that service or sell that thing and then just tell them I'm not negotiating. I'll just wait for the right customer. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely echo that. I think we need to hear a lot more of that, especially in this day and age where there's a lot of competition as well. And a lot, a lot of people inflate their prices and price themselves out because they just go somewhere else. 
-hmm. You know, it's not it's not that difficult to do nowadays. Marketing does speak to something, and I want to get your your thoughts on it, Tony, because you're very down to earth in the way you talk. I've loved the conversation so far, by the way. This has been amazing. I'm really glad that we got the chance to have you on the show. There's a lot out there right now about marketing. Everyone's a marketer, even if you're a business owner, all that sort of stuff. And that's something I'd probably agree with. Everyone's a marketer, whether you think you are or not. But there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there, i.e., I mean, I often talk about people hiding behind photo shoots, right? And doing all the sort of more polished side of things because it makes their lives easier, you know? You go on a photo shoot, that's three or six months worth of your, your content and then people have this perception of you and some, for some reason their price is also inflated, similar to what you mentioned before. And it creates this image of smoke and mirrors whereby once you get through that they're actually not very good at what they do so talk about the balance between marketing and actually being good one like the marketing has to be backed up by your actual ability yeah your your product or your service always has to have the result it always there, there's no there's no pushing back on that that that's given you have to have that but you also have to have the marketing and I don't think there's a problem with people creating really quality marketing that makes them perceived as as higher than they are, or let's say the word, or, or or more established than they are. But you better have the result to back that up, because honestly, if your marketing looks really mediocre and you're still using a Gmail uh, email account to to correspond with potential clients, what it really lacks is professionalism. And when I see things like your headshots or your your imagery or your branding, and it looks like your your ten year old nephew knocked that out, you know, <laughs> between naps, yeah, it just looks unprofessional. So I always think, even with a side business, who am I competing with? And if you got a specific product or niche, you're going to get compared against everybody in that category, whether they're big or small. Nobody knows if you're big or small when they're doing their search. So if they land on your website and it's just craptastic and nobody's like spending any time on it and it just looks awful, you're still going to get compared to, to the eight, nine figure companies in that same niche. So you got to really be honest with yourself. Like if I want to com compete in this arena, I at least need to look like I'm in the game and not disqualify myself just by doing things half-assed. So if you're going to go do something, do something full on, make it good, make it big, make it look like you got a giant team, even if you don't. Because soon enough, if you start behaving with those kind of actions and that professionalism, you will have a big company. It will grow because you're doing things the right way. You're not half-assing things. So, but you got to deliver on the results, man. And and the thing here's the thing about like you know we're we're on Clubhouse and we we see all these rooms we jump into the millionaire rooms and I, and I participate in some of those. It's kind of fun because I enjoy listening to those. Here's the thing that always gets to me: you millionaires really sit around asking for people for money. No. And millionaires definitely aren't DMing you and asking you for money. And every successful person, legit successful person I know, they're not out there asking you to DM them and 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 buy something all the time. It's just it just doesn't align with the actual message. So yeah, multimillionaire, I don't go around DMing people. I don't pitch. I don't tell people to follow me and do all this stuff. I, I understand if I just bring some value to people, they're going to find out what I do and they're going to understand if I offer a service or a product that they may want or may not want, or, or they're going to refer if that someone's asking them. So go create the value and quit focusing so much on the pitch. You know, I've not, I've been on clubhouse since January one actively and I don't ever pitch anything and it's landed me TV deals. I've got hundreds of thousands in clients and I've never pitched a single time being here. I do think that, it is about being good at what you do initially, isn't it? It's like you've got to be able to get results. You've got to be able to create the the transformation for people. Well, then you have to build something around it as well, as you said. Like you can't be amazing at what you do, then the marketing not showing that. You've got to have that balance because people don't see the results until after they've invested, after they've bought the thing so you've got to convey the results and the message of what you're selling based on 
the result, it kind of works both ways, doesn't it? You can be amazing at what you do, but no one knows you exist. Be amazing at what you do, but it's not it's not sort of wrapped in the not wrapped in the packaging, if you will, that attracts people to buy it. You know, so you can be a diamond in a rusted box and no one will buy it because of the box. Because as you said, people do judge a book by the cover, no matter how much we try to ignore that. Yeah, I think that if you don't have testimonials or customers or results, go create those, even if they're not paying you right now. So when I decided to go create processes to help people build and scale and exit their company, I helped 22 people in 2018 start their companies without charging them a cent. So then it gave me 22 testimonials, 100% success rate. So you can go do that, but are you willing to do what you do for free to get paid eventually? And most people are unwilling to do that. They just want that transactional retail thing right up front. And they're like, well, I'm just waiting for my right client. And someday somebody's going to hire me and I'm going to be able to prove myself. Like, no, go do it for free for a year. If you're serious about what you do, go do it for free for a year. Get a bunch of results. Those testimonials, those results are worth far more what those people are going to pay you on your initial wave of clients. And once you start to get the results, you can let them speak for you. That's an excellent point. And I think that is the best way to round off the interview. So, Tony, it's been great to have you on. Those that are brand new to the show, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you are tuning into your podcasts and leave a review and tell Tony about the show. Tell him what you thought. Tony, it's been great to have you on and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, Michael, for the opportunity.